There was a misprint in the bulletin, uh, Dick Hillis, not Hollis. His wife was called home to be with the Lord, and we need to be in prayer for the family of Dick Hillis. Would you join me in prayer at this time? Our gracious God and Father, we thank you today for the privilege of prayer, of being able to come into your presence and know you in an intimate way, to draw close to your breast and feel the warmth of your heart, and to know, dear Father, how deeply you love us. Father, we pray today that you would impress upon us who claim to bear the name of Christ, upon the Grace Baptist Church, a church located at Olive and Tracy, that, Father, before we can hope to enjoy and to be used of God and to enjoy the fruit of our eternal labors, there must be that which is prepared in our heart. We must be ready. Speak to our heart today about what readiness is, about what being prepared to do something for God really amounts to. We pray for the family of Dick Hillis. We pray, Lord, that you would comfort them at this hour. Lord, in the midst of all things, our earnest prayer is for Jesus Christ to be praised in our life and in death. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Some time ago on the editorial page of the New York Times, an article was carried entitled, God Bless America. It was written by by Janina Atkins, a Polish immigrant. See, she, she said, Just six years ago, I came with my husband to this country with $2.60 in my purse, some clothes and a few books and a bundle of old letters and a little eider-down pillow. I was an immigrant girl hoping for a new life and happiness in a strange new country. There was something in the air of America that filled my soul with the feeling of freedom and independence. This begot strength. There is no one here to lead you by the hand and order you about. We believed in the future, and the future did not disappoint us. Today, my husband is studying for his doctorate, and we live in a comfortable apartment. This is just one of many, many stories that would be very, very similar. If we were to study the lives of the people of our nation, their parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents, their great-great-grandparents, Millions of others, like Janina Atkins, have come to this country looking for independence and for freedom and for hope, looking for a new and a better life. As a symbol of this, the nation of France gave to us a great statue, the Statue of Liberty, that is near the entrance of New York Harbor. And nothing says it better than what's inscribed at the bottom of that statue. It says, Give me... You're poor and you're tired. You're huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, the tempest toast to me. I lift my lap beside the golden door. It is the world's tired, the world's poor, 
the masses, the wretched, the homeless, the hurting. These are the ones who are ready to enter through the golden door to the United States of America. Right here in our own church, and as I look around and pick out faces, I know there are people who have come here or whose parents have come here or whose great-parents have, great-grandparents have come here to the Gallatin Valley and to the United States of America for a better life. They're Dutch. They're German. They're English. They're Eastern European. They're French. They're Italian. People have sailed past the great statue in the New York Harbor and have entered the Golden Door to Pennsylvania, and to Ohio, and to Indiana, and Illinois, and to Iowa, and Nebraska, and Montana, and Washington, and Oregon, and California, seeking a better life, expecting to see something of their life that would be of value, to see their lives turned into something they could respect, that they could walk with their head upright and not bow down because they were the oppressed beaten nobodies of another nation. They came and they continue to come. And they continue to come even to this very day from Cuba and from Mexico, and from South America, from Africa. And they have succeeded. They have made a better life for themselves. What a marvel among nations. We live in a great nation. It doesn't take too long to realize that when you go away and visit another nation. We do live in a privileged land. And certainly the song that says, God shed His grace on thee is ever so true. But there is more to freedom and more to opportunity than advanced degrees and comfortable apartments. There is more to freedom and more to opportunity than business success and sprawling ranches. There is more to freedom and more to opportunity than fishing and hunting and backpacking and hiking and mountain climbing. These things which we have worked so hard for and these things which we value so much will give no satisfaction to us, no pleasure to us, no sense of value to us beyond the grave. Freedom and opportunity for the great majority of our American countrymen begins in New York Harbor and ends and it ends in the graveyards of the United States of America. Freedom is over. Independence is over. The sense of value, the sense of fulfillment is over. What I long for and what I committed my life to 18 years ago and what I know many of you long for and what you have committed your life to some years ago or some days ago is a statue of liberty that symbolizes those of us who are powerless and helpless who look for a golden door to freedom and opportunity whereby the fruits of our labor and our work will continue to fill our hearts beyond the grave. We want life opportunity. We want them to have value that reaches beyond a measly 70 years. 
This kind of freedom and this kind of opportunity does not come by crossing an ocean. It does not come by rolling a covered wagon over the Great Plains. This kind of liberty and this kind of opportunity comes to those who are prepared to fully utilize it. Who will not squander it on themselves, but who will spend the opportunity for eternity. 1900 years ago, on the other side of the ocean, there was a city called Philadelphia. And within the city, there was a small group of people who had been given this freedom and this independence. A kind of freedom and independence that went beyond the grave. An opportunity to do something with their life for eternity. To work for eternal gain. And the freedom and the opportunity were given to them because they were prepared to utilize it fully. Turn, if you will, to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. And we read, beginning in verse 7. We're going to just read the two introductory verses to this letter this morning. We'll consider the balance of it next week. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door which no man can shut. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I have set before thee an open door which no man can shut. And these two verses, immediately our attention is taken to an open door that was before the church at Philadelphia. It was an open door in the sense that it was a tremendous privilege, more so than any other church written that the Lord wrote to in the chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. Now, what was this Philadelphia like? First of all, let me tell you a little bit about the city itself. Philadelphia was a tiny little city, not very significant, and yet it was strategically located at the upper extremity of a long valley that opened back from the sea. After passing by Philadelphia, the road along the valley would begin to rise abruptly and pour out onto a great plain that was all of Asia Minor. the main part of Asia Minor, which today is called Eastern Turkey. And eventually, opening out into the harbor at Smyrna. Because of its strategic location, the city of Philadelphia has been described as the keeper of the gate leading to the plateau. It was a door into Asia. 
In fact, the intention of the man who founded it, his name was Attalus II, was to make it a center of Greco-Asiatic civilization. And that simply means that it was a center, a means, a place where the Greek culture could be spread, the Greek language could be spread into Asia and the Orient. It was a missionary city, not in the sense of what we think of when we think of missionary, but its mission was to promote the unity of the spirit and the customs and loyalty within the land that was essentially Greek. It was an apostle of the Greek culture in an oriental land. However, the Lord, He opened the door for the church, not for the purpose of spreading the Greek language and the Greek culture, but He opened the door to this church for the opportunity of spreading His Word and the gospel of peace to a world that was turned in turmoil. Now, an open door in Scripture is often used as an expression in the early church to express opportunity to minister the Word of God and spread the gospel. At Antioch, the apostles began to report all the things that God hath done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Paul told the Corinthians, he said, I shall remain at Ephesus for a wide open door for effective ministry has opened to me and there are many adversaries. Again, he told them, and when I came to Troas for the gospel, and a door was opened for me by the Lord. To the Colossians, he said, pray for me that God may open up to us a door for the Lord, for the Word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have been imprisoned. The open door was clearly a symbol in the early church of an opportunity to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, to spread the Word of God, the mysteries of Christ, to speak them to a world that never heard them or knew them or knew what they meant. This was the church, the door that was opened to the church at Philadelphia. They were to bring the gospel to the Lydians and the Phygerians and to all the peoples of the world in their area. This indeed was freedom and opportunity for them, not simply limited to the opportunities of this life, not just the opportunity to make a better life for themselves or to accumulate wealth or to build a trade or a business or to establish a name or to, to have fun and relaxation. This was an opportunity to invest their time and their effort and their resources into a work of spreading the gospel all over the ancient world to pour out their lives into the lives of people, to invest their lives in the lives of people, to shape them into living stones that they might become part of a temple to glorify God in these days. 
And in eternity to come, these very living stones who were in the presence of God would be like a crown around their head. A crown of rejoicing, a crown of glory that would bring to them a sense of fulfillment for all eternity. That is opportunity. What other investment of time or money or resources do you know of that would pay that kind of dividend? Some of you who are investment specialists, do you know of another investment that would pay that kind of dividend that would bring fulfillment to your heart and happiness to your life for all eternity? This was the kind of opportunity to invest that was opened to the church at Philadelphia. But it was an opportunity that was afforded only people and only a church that was prepared to utilize it in the fullest extent. It's interesting. As you study the churches in the area, some of them were having problems with love and loyalty. Others were having problems just with survival. Some were fighting the presence of false teachers. Others were in outright spiritual adultery. And some were so dead that they were ready to shrivel up and be of no use to God whatsoever. But it was the little church at Philadelphia, the insignificant church, that was prepared in attitude and in heart for an open door that the Lord would open to this church and this church alone. Now, what was it that so uniquely qualified this church for this ministry, for this open door? for this opportunity to invest their lives for eternity. Verses 7 and 8 again. These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, because... Thou hast little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Now, when an employer promotes an employee to a promising position in the company, he usually does it because he finds in that employee certain qualities that he admires and he respects and values. It may be in industry, or reliability, or ambition, or loyalty, or honesty, or what have you. He admires those qualities and he respects them and values them. And often, the reason is, is that he has found those qualities in his own life. He possesses those qualities himself and he knows that they are needed to accomplish the work. And so that employer will hire and promote that employee. In the church of Philadelphia, the one who opened the door for them refers to himself in three ways. First, he, first of all, he says, he 
that is holy. He that is holy. Jesus Christ is the one that wrote this letter, and he makes a definite statement about himself. He says, I am holy. The one who is holy. Throughout Scripture, this is borne out. In Hebrews, we are told that Jesus Christ is the one who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. In 1 Peter, Peter testified of him as the one who did not sin, neither was any guile found in his mouth. Holiness described the very character of Jesus Christ. Everything he was, everything he said, everything he did was holy. It pointed to the very character of God. In him was no sin. Instead, he perfectly revealed the character of God. So much so that he would say to those around him, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the fleshly manifestation of God. What I do and what I say and what I am can only be described as holy. The Scripture says that He was the brightness of God's glory, the express image of His person. This was the quality in the life of Jesus Christ. And He values the quality of holiness in the life of a man, in the life of a church. And what He found at Philadelphia was a church that did not deny His name. Now, a name stands for a character. And the church of Philadelphia was making it very clear by their testimony and by their stand and by their words and by their law for one another that they did not deny the character of Christ. They themselves strove for holiness. Holiness was something that was at the heart of their ministry and the heart of their church. And the Lord valued that. He valued it in the lives of the people in Philadelphia who strove to be holy. Holy living was not an occasion for a joke in Philadelphia. It was the very fabric of the church's life. Righteousness, justice, honesty, compassion, mercy, purity, patience. These were the qualities that you would see in the church at Philadelphia. And above all, the church lived up to its name. It was the church at Philadelphia. It was the church in the city of brotherly love. And this was a church that knew what it was to love God and to love its neighbor. It was a church that modeled the very name of its community, brotherly love. The character of the church was a picture of the character of Christ. It was a church that could be described, humanly speaking, as holy. Now, Ephesus... She had lost her first love. At Pergamus, they were looking to see how far they could go and how much they could get away with and still be Christian. At Thyatira, they made a mockery of the holiness of God. At Sardis, they had a form of godliness, but no power thereof. They were dead. But a small, insignificant church named Philadelphia was like a lighthouse in the ancient world. Showing people what it was like to live a godly life and to be a godly church. Pointing the way to the holiness of God. 
This was a church that Jesus Christ could trust or honor with an open door. Secondly, Jesus describes himself as the one who is true. Elsewhere, the Apostle John talks of Christ being truth. He says, For the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Again, Jesus said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus was the truth. He brought truth. He claimed to be the truth. Later, before Pontius Pilate, he said, when Pilate asked him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. He brought the truth. He was the truth. He came to witness for the truth. Everything he said, everything he did was consistent with the truth. And he made it clear that you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Our Savior knew that there was one thing that could liberate men, and it was the truth. One thing could set them free from themselves and their sin. It was truth. Not trickery, not gimmicks, not games, not riddles. It was the truth. And Jesus knew that only men who were committed to the truth, only a church that was committed to the truth, could be used in the liberation and the salvation of the souls of those around it. At the church of Death Philadelphia, he found a church that kept his word. A church that had kept his word. It built its ministry around the word of God as a foundation. The truth, the word of Christ. This was what was preeminent at the church at Philadelphia. It was not their program. It was not their numbers. It was not their wealth. It was the Word of God. And people walked in and out of the church and they said, there's a church that stands for the Word of God. While other churches in the area were looking to themselves or to their past or to their traditions or their customs or whatever, the church at Philadelphia looked to the Word of God. The church at Philadelphia alone was the only thing, the only church of the seven that made the Word of God central in its life, with the exception of perhaps Smyrna. The Word of God is the only thing that can make a disciple for Jesus Christ. Church programs don't make disciples. The Word of God makes disciples. It was only this which could convince a skeptical world and change the lives of hardened men into living stones for God. And the church at Philadelphia was willing not to to compromise the Word of God. Oh, they compromised their traditions. They compromised their customs. These were no big things. As they took the gospel into the world at that time, they were willing to, to overcome or overlook differences culturally, differences in background, differences in custom and practice. 
But there was one thing they wouldn't compromise, and that was the Word of God. This was surely a church that Jesus Christ could trust with an open door. Lastly, Jesus describes Himself as the one that hath the key of David. As the one that hath the key of David, who opens and no man shuts, and who shuts and no man opens. These words are drawn from a passage in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 22. I'm not going back there, but I just want to fill you in on the story just briefly. The title of this particular passage was The Burden of the Valley of Vision, and by which the prophet designated Jerusalem as the place that was shut and protected by the Lord. It was during the time of Hezekiah and the Assyrian Assyrian attack upon Jerusalem under the armies, under the leadership of Sennacherib. The people should have been in mourning and repentance, looking to God to save them, and instead they were living in frivolity. And their leader was Shebna. And he was a very frivolous, careless man. He was leading the people, and the people were not serious-minded. They were not looking to the Lord to save them. They were ignoring the danger. And so the Lord says, I'm going to cast Shebna out. I'm going to get rid of him. And in his place I'm going to put Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. And he said of Eliakim, And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder, so that he shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. Now, Eliakim became a picture, a shadow of the reality of the real Eliakim, Jesus Christ. And the key was a symbol of the authority that he had over the house of Israel. Jesus Christ has authority over the house of Israel. He is the King of the Jews. He's also the King of kings and Lord of lords over the whole universe. No passage brings this to the front like Matthew chapter 28. Let me just share this passage with you without you turning. You're all familiar with it. Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All authority, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and then, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end. All power, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. I have the key. I can unlock the door to a nation and make it possible for you to go into that nation and share the gospel of Jesus Christ, or I can close the door. The door was not open to the majority of the other churches that are mentioned in Revelation. But the door was open to Philadelphia. When it came to opening the door and spreading the gospel, it was the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who could open the door. Now, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords was not looking for the kind of church that had its own power and its own abilities and its own money and could, you know, had clout. It had numbers. 
It was big and gigantic and it could really carry the weight. The one who had the key and who opens the door was looking for a church that realized its insignificance, that realized its impotence, that realized it had no authority whatsoever. It was looking, he was looking for churches and for people who had nowhere else to turn but to him. And there's the secret. And you see, Philadelphia had nowhere else to turn but to him. It was that kind of church. Now, other churches in the area, they had many people. They were big churches, splendid churches. Many of them thought they could make their own breaks. Some prided themselves in being able to go it alone. Some relied on their superior wealth. And others, like Thyatira, relied on their reputation, their splendor. But churches like people who had no authority, who had no significance, who were just nobodies, these were the ones that were ready for the open door. Like the inscription on the Statue of Liberty, send me the poor and the tired and the world's masses and the nobodies, the people that nobody else wants. These are the people that are prepared for the United States of America. And believe me, it's the same kind of person that is prepared for the kingdom of God and prepared to do something for God in this world because that person will not look to himself or to his bank book or to his reputation. He will look to the Lord Jesus Christ to open the door to be his sovereign God and take control of his life. That's the kind of church and that's the kind of people our Lord was looking for. It was the Lord and the Lord alone that could open the door. And Philadelphia had nowhere else to turn. And the Lord was pleased to open the door for Philadelphia. It was Philadelphia, not the splendid Thyatira or the well-known Sardis or the rich Laodicea, that would be privileged to invest in the eternity's treasures. It was Philadelphia, that would have the privilege to share the Word of God with the people of Asia Minor. It was Philadelphia who would have the privilege to speak the mysteries of God to people who never heard or knew such mysteries existed. It would be the Church of Philadelphia in eternity who would see souls that would be one to Christ there because of their opportunity to invest in those lives. And that would be a fulfilling experience indeed. But Philadelphia, it was a missionary church in the land of Asia Minor, but it was more. The church at Philadelphia was a divinely chosen example of the church of Jesus Christ during the last 200 years called the missionary age the church at Philadelphia is a divinely chosen illustration he could have picked there were gods of churches in the area but he chose seven because each one of the seven symbolized a period of time in his church and the church at Philadelphia symbolizes the church 
for the last 200 years and up till the coming of Christ. The missionary age. We looked at the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages. We've looked at the Reformation period, symbolized by Sardis. And now we come to Philadelphia. Now, you know, if we had paid a brief visit to the planet from outer space in 1789, we might well have assumed that Christianity was a white man's religion. It was the tribal religion of the white peoples before 1789. Now, there were a few descendants in the New World who embraced the religion, but they were a small minority at that time. Then if we went away for, say, 200 years and came back in the 1980s today, we would find that the church of Jesus Christ was a world religion. Not just the church, but the true church of Jesus Christ was a world religion and is a world religion. People all over the world embrace Jesus Christ as their Savior and their hope for eternal life. We would find that genuine Christianity is firmly established on every continent. Among all peoples from the most diverse and the most unidentical backgrounds. And furthermore, we would find that today the church of Jesus Christ, the genuine church of Jesus Christ, and I make that distinction, is still growing. Growing most of all in the southern continents of Africa and South America. For 200 years, the true church, made up of true believers in Jesus Christ, has been burning with evangelical fervor, convinced of its missionary responsibility to preach the gospel to all nations and to make disciples of all men and teach them all things that Christ has commanded him. Missionary societies were formed in the late 1700s. Eventually they were, became faith missions that we know of today. The whole thing began with a tiny Moravian community. How many of you know what Moravians are? A few. Moravians were a small community of believers located primarily in Bavaria. They were the acknowledged leader to begin with in the area of missions in the late 1700s. They went so far as to sell themselves into slavery so they could win other slaves to Jesus Christ. By the 1790s, believers from among all the denominations, the Baptists, the Methodists, the Presbyterians, the Anglicans, the whole works, believers were coming out of those denominations, not leaving the denomination, but they were coming out to reach the world for Christ. They were coming together in societies committed to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to peoples who'd never heard. Perhaps the London Missionary Society at that period expresses it best in its fun fundamental principle. It says, its fundamental principle is that our design is not to send Presbyterianism or independency or episcopacy or any other form of church government, but the glorious gospel of the blessed God to the heathen. 
God opened a door for the church and men like Hudson Taylor and William Carey and David Livingston were walking through the door and leading God's people on the most glorious enterprise that men could invest their life and their money in and that was missions and the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was an opportunity to invest resources and efforts and time in the winning of souls for the kingdom of God and bringing people in that they might worship the Savior. Now, for hundreds of years, nothing was done in the Christian religion. It was just a white people's religion centered in Europe. Now, at last, in the 1700s, the late 1700s, Genuine Christianity begins to spread all over the world. Why did God wait so long? He could have opened the door during the age of Pergamos or Thyatira or Sardis, but He didn't. He waited to the age of Philadelphia. He waited to the 1700s because it was that point that the church was prepared to move out and to utilize the opportunity for the fullest advantage for the kingdom of God. What was it that prepared the church? What was it that readied God's people for this great endeavor in the late 1700s? Well, if you go back to the early 1700s, we would find something like dead orthodoxy, the kind that you find at Sardis. That's what prevailed. Churches were lifeless. They were forms. Formalism was the big thing. Reason was sweeping the nation or the world. Reason was replacing the Word of God. Hedonism was in. Holiness was out. Then revival broke out. Revival broke out like an uncontrollable fire. It raged in the hearts of men. Multitudes of people from all denominations, all walks of life were turning to Christ, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, black and white. They were turning to Christ in England. It was called the Evangelical Revival. In Europe it was called, or in North America it was called the Great Awakening. In Europe it was called the Pietist Movement. And North America began with Jonathan Edwards in 1734, followed by the great preaching of George Whitfield, who preached to 20,000 people who couldn't get into a building. In Europe, it spread from the Dutch Reformed to the Lutherans to the Moravians. And then the Moravians got together with the Wesleys, the Wesley brothers. And as a result, the Wesley brothers experienced their great conversion in 1738. And they went on to lead all of England in a great revival that spread from the Wales to Scotland, from London. It crossed denominational boundaries. It crossed national boundaries. People were being bound together unlike they'd ever been bound together before. Oh, they still had their different church governments. But they knew that was not the issue it was not whether you believed in a, an episcopacy or a congregational form of church government. It was whether you were willing to unite around the blood of Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. 
dead church members were turned into vibrant Christians. If you open your hymnal, you'll find that most of the hymns have been written since the 1700s, and a great bulk of them were written during that period of time. We still sing them today, and you can't improve on them. They came from a wellspring of people who were on fire for Jesus Christ. But the revival accomplished more than just conversions. This was not a numbers game. It produced within the church churches and people who were marked by three things. First of all, by a concern for holy living. From the house meetings that were organized by Philip Spinner for prayer and Bible study and sharing to the Holy Club of the Wesleys, holiness was a concern of the revivalists of that day. Holiness was something that they looked to to be a transformation in the life of a one who claimed to be a follower of Jesus Christ. A second thing that you notice in that period and in that time was they were committed to the Word of God. The Word of God was a foundation for their life. It had been tradition. It had been forms and formality. It had been nationalism. Now it was the Word of God around which they were uniting. In the early 1800s, as a result of that commitment to the Word of God, Bible societies were begun. They continue to exist to this day, and the printing of Bibles in all the languages of the world, for the most part, the major languages, has been accomplished. ways the independent missionary organization. And he went out and he called to his fellow Christians and he urged them, he said, you fellow Christians expect great things of God and attempt great things for God. He knew that the Lord Jesus Christ had the key to open the door in India and China and Africa and South America. And he said to his Christian friends, he said, appeal to the one who has the key. Expect him to open those doors and attempt great things for God. This was a church that Jesus Christ could honor. This was a church that He could trust with an open door. This was a church that He was pleased in the latter part of the 17th century to open that door. This was the church of Philadelphia. I'd like you to notice one thing in your text. In verse 8, he says, Behold, I have set before thee an open door. Now, in the Greek languages, there are many tenses. A present tense would indicate a continuous action, a continuous door being opened. It wasn't a present tense. An aorist tense would indicate that the door was open for just a moment, for just a point in time. But the most interesting tense is used here. It's called a perfect tense. That means at a point in time it was open. But the results of it being open continue. Until we read later, Jesus Christ comes again for His church. That means, my friend, that that door is still open today. 
It was not just open momentarily. It has not been open for 2,000 years. It was opened in the 1700s. And it stays open to this very day until our Savior comes again. Right now, that means we can have a part in this great opportunity to invest our lives, to spend our time and our energy and our resources for eternal gain. Now, today, Europe is closed. The door is open, but they're not prepared to use and work through the door. They themselves have become a mission field. And I fear, my friends, that in the United States of America, with churches that don't really need the Lord Jesus Christ, with churches that are turning from a holy life, with churches that are leaving the Word of God as a foundation for their life and their faith and their practice, I fear today that the door may, that we may be losing out on a great opportunity. Perhaps it will be the churches of the southern continents, if the Lord tarries, who will be the missionaries for the next hundred years. But the door remains open. I believe that God had a great plan for our nation. I don't believe it was just a place where people could come and have a better life and live, have good times, and have sprawling ranches and great businesses and make all kinds of money. I think God's purpose in this nation is best expressed with the idea that He intended to grow churches in this nation who would be prepared to reach out into the whole world and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why has this nation been in existence for 200 years? Certainly it's not been because of our track record. I believe it's been because of our attitude towards missions. The churches in this nation have stood up for righteousness, for the Word of God, and have looked to the Lord to open doors all over the world. They have poured their money and their time and their effort into spreading the gospel. And we can continue to have a part in that. But it comes back to one central thing. We must be prepared. We must be a church that is concerned with holiness. We must be a church that is concerned with the Word of God. We must be a church that recognizes that we don't have the clout or the money or the wealth to pull it off. Jesus Christ holds the key. We must be people who are committed to holiness. Churches are made up of individuals. You and I are a part of this church. Are we concerned with holiness and holy living? Are we concerned with the Word of God? Are we concerned with, the, with coming to Christ and finding in Him the authority and the power that we need for life? Or are we self-sufficient? It's interesting... We're looking at some land. Of course, in the back of everybody's mind is, are we going to build a building? Do we have the money? Can we do it? You know, I really don't think that's important. I 
I think that what's really important in our church right now is our commitment. Our commitment to holiness. To modeling the character of Christ in our community. Our commitment to the Word of God. For being a a committed person willing to stand on the Word, to seek it and to hunger after it and to feed on it in church, in Sunday school, in Bible studies, wherever. Lastly, we need to be committed to the Lord Himself. Not to our wealth or our numbers or our size. We must be committed to one thing, Jesus Christ. This is what the Lord's looking for. And He will open the door for the church who He finds is committed to His holiness, to His Word, and to Himself. Is this what He's finding today at Grace Baptist Church? Is this what He's finding in your life and in my life? Shall we pray? Our gracious God and Father, we thank You so much for the life that You've given us in Jesus Christ. Oh, speak to our hearts and help us to know that that life that You have given to us is not a life that You intended for us to squander on ourselves, but to spend for the gain of eternity. But Father, help us to know that You cannot use us We will not be suitable or prepared unless we as a church and each of us as people is committed to a holy, righteous God. Is committed to His Word and committed to Him and Him alone. Speak, Lord, to hearts as they need to be spoken to on this day. For we ask it in Christ's name. I'd like for you all to turn in your hymnals to 156.